Our Father in heaven, I pray that you would give us clarity of mind concerning Christ Jesus. I pray that you would help us to understand who He is and what He has done for us. We have faith in Him, and many of us have had faith in Christ for a very long time, maybe even since we were children. I pray that you would add understanding to our faith so that we can better appreciate what you have done for us in the Messiah. We thank you for our salvation in Him and the hope of life everlasting. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I wanted to give a brief overview of the things covered in this chapter. We're taking it in three parts. Um, Here, Wellam is seeking to just bring clarity to the doctrine of Christ to state the matter very positively. And he uh, does so in five big sections. Uh, He talks about the doctrine of Christ as we consider Him as the Divine Son. Uh, The second section, B, on your outline, we consider Christ in the Incarnation. Uh, C, we take a special look at the two natures of Christ. D, we look at Him as our new covenant head. And then E, we look at Him as our Lord and Savior. And in these five big uh, categories, there are ten points uh, that are made. I want to just review the first three points very quickly that were made in Lesson 11 of our study. Uh, Christ as the Divine Son, here are three things that were said Concerning him, the person or subject of the incarnation is the eternal divine Son. The person or subject of the incarnation is the eternal or and, and divine Son. So it was not the Father or the Spirit who became incarnate, nor was it the divine nature that became incarnate. It was specifically the person of the Son who took to himself a human nature. It is very important to to understand here. If we say that it was the divine nature that became incarnate, then that would mean change in God. And we cannot have change in God, for God cannot change. And the scriptures are consistent and clear. It was the Word, the second person of the triune God, who became flesh. It was not God, uh, the nature of God, that became flesh. It wasn't the triune God that became flesh. It was not the Father or Son who became flesh, but the Son only, excuse me, the Father or the Spirit who became flesh. It was the Son only or the Word only. Two, as the Divine Son, the second person of the triune Godhead, He is the exact image, correspondence, and Word of the Father and is thus fully God. Uh, so, uh, the Son is the Divine Son. Uh, therefore, Christ is God with us. Uh, the second person of the Trinity, the Divine Son, took to Himself a human nature and therefore... God is with us in the person of Christ. Three, as the divine Son, He has always existed in an eternally ordered relation to the Father and the Spirit, which now is gloriously revealed in the Incarnation. Here we looked at the fact that if we consider God as He has been and always will be, as He is eternally, uh, there are divine processions. So the Son uh, proceeds from the Father and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. This is true of God for all eternity. And yet we see that same procession manifest in the works of God, uh, in the work of creation. It is God, the Father, who creates the world through the Son, by the word of His power, and by His Spirit. And as it pertains to our redemption, the same is true. God, the Father, reconciles sinners to Himself through the work of the Son, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the divine processions, 
as they are in eternity, in the Godhead for all eternity, are also manifest to us in time in God's work of creation and God's work of redemption. Isn't that marvelous to consider? Okay, so these three points have been made in this chapter uh, regarding the Divine Son. And they are wonderfully stated. It would be good just to read them and read them again and read this chapter over and over again if you, if, if you have time, if you need to do that. And in fact, I think we all would benefit from it. Uh, now we are going to turn our attention to Jesus, uh, the Eternal Son, come in the flesh, uh, and as the Incarnate Son. Uh, and there are, let's see here, one, two, three points that are made. Uh, points four through six. One, two, three points that are made in this section. And then lesson 13, we will cover the last three parts of this chapter, as you can see in the outline here. So, point four made in this <clears throat> lesson is that the incarnation is an act of addition, not subtraction. The incarnation is an act of addition, not subtraction. So, the eternal Son assumed or took to himself a human nature. The eternal Son took to himself an eternal nature. He did not give up anything about himself. He did not give up his divinity in any way. When the scriptures speak of him being emptied, it is speaking of his humiliation. He is being emptied by assuming a human nature, you see. It's an act of addition, not subtraction. He is being emptied in that his glory is veiled in the incarnation. He comes in a humble, human form in order to accomplish our redemption. But He does so without giving up anything. There is no change in the Godhead. Uh, the Son's glory was veiled in the incarnation, but the Son's glory was not veiled in heaven. Um, I was chatting with some pastor friends about this the other day. We had a little text message thing going on and we were just quipping about this. Uh, this question here. <clears throat> when the Son became incarnate, it's not as if the angels looked at the Godhead and say, Oh, look, His glory has been diminished. You see, the glory of the Son has been diminished. Something's changed. It, <laughs> that didn't happen. Uh, but rather, the glory of the Son was veiled in the incarnation, in the person of Christ, as He was manifest on earth in that way. The incarnation is an act of addition, not subtraction. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Five, the virgin conception was the glorious means by which the incarnation took place. So how did the Son become incarnate? Well, through the uh, virgin conception. The, the Son was born uh, of the Virgin Mary. Six, the human nature assumed by the Divine Son is fully human, unfallen, and sinless. The human nature assumed by the Divine Son, is fully human, unfallen, and sinless. And so, <clears throat> the rest of this chapter just kind of, or the rest of this section rather, uh, explains these three clear remarks that have been made. These statements, Wellam says, focus on the nature of the incarnation, namely, how the, the Word became flesh, John 1, 14, and what happened when He did. From eternity, the Son, in relation to the Father and Spirit, added a second nature, namely, a human nature consisting of a human body and soul, Philippians 2, 6-8. through 8. 
As a result, the Son added a human dimension to His personal divine life and became present to us in a new mode of existence as the incarnate Son. Yet, the Son's subsistence and action in both natures is consistent with the integrity of both, without either nature ever being mutually exclusive to the other. Given the incarnation, the Son is able to act by His two natures and produce effects proper to each nature, and thus accomplish our salvation as the Divine Son, who obeys for us in His life and death as our covenant representative and substitute. Uh, that is kind of an introductory and overarching statement of this whole section that is found on pages 158 through 159 of Wellam's book. Uh, there's a lot of technical language there. I understand that. I've read it to you just to give you that kind of broad overview of uh, what Wellam here teaches. It's a wonderful statement. And now we will look at the parts of it in greater detail. Point one under that broad introductory statement. How did the incarnation occur? How did the incarnation occur? It happened by the virgin conception which was the sovereign, effectual means by which the Son assumed a human nature. You may go to Matthew 1, 18-25, Luke 1, 26-38 uh, to see uh, the, the Scripture's teaching on that. The act of the Incarnation was triune, and we must say that the Incarnation terminated on the Son. Uh, what does Wellam mean by this? Um, the act was triune. In other words, the incarnation took place. It was the will of the Father and the Spirit of God was involved uh, to bring about that conception, that miraculous conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary. So the act itself was triune, but it terminated or landed on the Son. In other words, that's another way of saying that it was the Son and not the Father and the Spirit who became incarnate, who took to Himself a human nature. It was the person of the Son who assumed the human nature and became the acting subject in the human nature of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The act was triune. The incarnation terminated on the Son. The incarnation was thoroughly supernatural. It was thoroughly supernatural. So Christ was conceived not in the ordinary way that human beings are conceived. Uh, Joseph I, I trust that he was a very righteous man and a very good uh, stepfather to Jesus. Um, but he had nothing to do with it. The incarnation was thoroughly supernatural. How many fathers did Jesus have? Uh, he had one father. Um, Joseph was a stepfather to him, as it were. Uh, but God alone was the father of Jesus, the conception of Jesus was thoroughly supernatural. The incarnation, letter C, was the fulfillment of Old Testament expectations. Here I'm simply wanting to draw your attention to the fact that Wellam does deal with this. He, he helps us to see that this virgin birth, uh, as miraculous and supernatural as it was, didn't happen just out of the blue, but was spoken of beforehand. The virgin shall conceive and be with child, the prophet says. Um, and also, I think as you study Genesis, you'll notice something about the patriarchs. Um, these aren't virgin births, mind you. But what do you notice about 
Abraham and Sarah. Remember how hard it was for them to conceive? And yet she conceives in her old age. It's a theme. That's the point I'm making. That there are these miraculous kind of conceptions. You know, they're, they're not the same as the virgin birth by, by no means. But it was incredible that Sarah had uh, the, her, her promised son, uh, her promised child, uh, so late in her life. And I think those are hints. They're kind of foreshadowings of the virgin birth. Of course, the virgin birth is of another kind and it's far greater. But there's a reason why we find that theme in the patriarchs. It's there to show us that uh, the Lord is going to bring about the seed of Eve, the Savior of His elect. He's gonna br- he is going to bring that seed into the world um, by the power of of His Holy Spirit. And so these are little foreshadowings, I think, of the virgin birth itself. But there are other prophecies that speak directly to um, the fact of the virgin birth. So the incarnation was the fulfillment of Old Testament expectations. In the Old Testament, we expect one son, one seed to arise from the seed of the woman, from Israel, in order to save uh, God's people from their sins. D, regarding the human nature the Son assumed, it is best to say that it was unfallen and sinless. Regarding the human nature that the Son assumed, it is best to say that it was unfallen and sinless. And here on page 159 and following of Wellam's book, he does uh, tell us that there's some debate about this. There are some who want to say that no, Christ assumed a fallen human nature, and they will reason in this way, He had to assume a fallen human nature in order to be thoroughly tempted in the exact same way that we are tempted. You see, we are tempted uh, from without. Uh, The world tempts us. Uh, The evil one tempts us. We are tempted uh, as we experience or are threatened with the sufferings of this life. Uh, But we are also tempted from within, too, are we not? Uh, Because of the corruptions of our flesh, because of that fallen nature that we possess. Uh, We are not only tempted from without, we are also tempted by our own sinful desires. And so there are some who would say, in order for Christ to be tempted just like we are tempted, He also had to have a fallen uh, and corrupted Uh, sinful nature. Uh, You know, you you hear that argument and it it has a, there's something appealing about it, I would admit. Um, Oh, okay, yeah, he was tempted just as we are. I think we need to be careful with this though, and and Wellam does warn us. He he says uh, that this view, that the Son assumed a fallen human nature, is problematic for at least four reasons. First, it lacks biblical support. Uh, passages such as Philippians 2, 7-8 through 8 and Romans 3 refer to our common human nature. Christ came to represent a new humanity. Jesus is not in Adam as we are, and thus He is not fallen. Uh, I have picked up little phrases from Wellam, Wellam there. So yes, he, he, shares, he shares in our human nature. He shares in our human nature. But as we will see in just a moment, that doesn't necessarily mean that he has to share in our fallen human nature. Uh, in fact, point two, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, uh, clarifies that fallen human nature 
is not essential to humanity. Did Adam and Eve have a human nature prior to sin entering into the world? Yes, they had a human nature that was unfallen as they came from the hand of God. They were upright. Everything was good. They were pure and perfect. And did Adam and Eve have a human nature after the fall, or did they lose it? (laughs) No, they still possessed the same human nature. They still had bodies, they still had souls, and they were still the same persons acting through their souls and their bodies. They did not lose their human nature. In fact, nothing changed in terms of the the components of their human nature, if I could use that term. They still had the same faculties of soul. They still had the same body parts. They were still persons acting through them, but the human nature was in that moment fallen or corrupted when they rebelled against God. And so what Wellam is showing us here is that you can have a human nature. You can, Christ, it was possible for Christ to assume a human nature just like ours, but one that was unfallen. In other words, Christ... Uh, the eternal Son of God, the per- second person of the Trinity, uh, took to Himself a true uh, human body with the same body parts that we have and a true and reasonable human soul uh, with the same faculties of parts that our souls have, mind, will, and affections. We've been using that terminology. Okay, so it is true that Christ took to Himself a true human nature and it was not necessary for Him to take to Himself a fallen one. Uh, Again, I'll return to point two under E here. A fallen human nature view seems to imply that corruption is essential to humanity. But as we've just said, it is not. To argue that unless Christ was fallen, He cannot be fully human like us implies that to be human is to be fallen. And again, it is not. Fallenness is not essential to us. And thankfully, Christ was fully human yet sinless and unfallen As such, Christ can become the last Adam, the head of the new creation, and in His humanity can redeem us and secure the pattern of His glorified humanity. Okay. In fact, I would argue that one of the main reasons, not the only reason, for the virgin birth is so that Christ could assume a human nature that was unfallen, uncorrupted by the uh, sin of Adam. Um, Adam is our federal head, Uh, We descend from Him. Christ did not descend from Him by way of ordinary generation. And therefore, Christ did not have Adam as His federal head in the way that we do. He was not born fallen and sinful as we are. Third, in the case of Christ, a fallen incarnation requires that we separate fallen from sinful. But this is difficult to warrant biblically and theologically. Do you see the point that uh, Wellam is making here? Um, if, If we... If we say that Christ was born with a fallen human nature, then was He not sinful from birth? I think that's, how we, that's what we must say if we are tracking along with um, other things that the Bible say about our fallen sinful nature. Uh, to, to, be, to be born of Adam, to be born fallen, means that we are born guilty before God. Uh, Our natures are corrupted, and we are born guilty before God. And yes, it is out of that nature that we do, in fact, commit actual sins, you see. And so this view is very problematic because it would make Christ guilty from the moment of conception. It would put Christ in Adam. It would mean that Christ was a child of wrath, to use Paul's language. 
um, from birth. In fact, that is what Paul clearly says to the Christians um, uh, that, that he writes to in, in Ephesus. He says, you, you were by nature children of wrath. What does he mean? <laughs> by, by nature, when he uses that phrase, by nature, he's talking about from birth. By virtue of your birth, you were children of wrath. Do we wish to say that Jesus Christ was at any point a child of wrath before God? No. So he assumed a true human nature, but one that was unfallen, uncorrupted by sin. The transmission of sin was broken um, in part by that miraculous virgin birth of which we have been speaking, so that Christ was not born in Adam and in the corruption of Adam. Fourth, a fallen incarnation risks separating the human nature of Christ from His person. Let me read that again just so that I can understand the statement because I've forgotten the point here. Fourth, a fallen incarnation risks separating the human nature of Christ from His person. We must maintain that the eternal Son is not fallen, but how do we separate the person from the human nature that He assumed? Um, Wellam's point is this, and this might help to clarify other things that we've been considering, in fact. We have been making a distinction between person and nature, haven't we? We have been saying that person and nature are different things. A person is a subject who acts through a nature. So in God there are three persons who share the divine nature. They are three persons or three subsistences, acting subjects or existences, that act through the one divine nature. How many gods are there? (laughs) There's only one. There's one divine nature. How many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three. So we must distinguish between persons and nature. In human beings, in normal human beings like you and me. Um, How many persons are there in you and in me? One. How many natures? One. In every instance. I am a person, and in my person I act through my nature, my soul, and my body. In Christ, there is one person. Who is He? He is the I Am. Yes? the second person of the triune God. He is the eternal Son of God. There's one person. Who is He? He is the Son of God. And how many natures does He have? Does he act, how many natures does He act through? Two, the divine and the human. So we've been making this distinction between person and nature, and it is right that we do so, but we must not pretend that in reality we can divide persons from nature. Does that make sense? Uh, they, they, are, they always come together. They always come together. We cannot divide the persons of God from the nature of God. We can, do, we can, we can speak of the difference uh, theologically and philosophically. We can distinguish between the two things in our talk, and we must in order to make sense of the Trinity and of the Incarnation and even of ourselves. But of course... They cannot be divided. And the same would be true of all human beings. Never has an individual existed where there is a separation between person and nature. But every individual who's ever been brought into existence is a 
person who acts through their nature, body and soul, you see. And the same is true of Christ in the incarnation. Never was there a time when the human nature of Christ existed apart from the person of Christ. But at the moment of conception, it was the person of the Son who took to himself the human nature. And the point that Wellam is here making uh, for, under this uh, main heading, is that if we say that Christ uh, was fallen, that he assumed a fallen nature, then that would certainly affect the person of Christ in a way. It would be the person of the Son having to act through a corrupted thing, a defiled thing. And we cannot so divide person from from nature here. Though we distinguish between these two things in our speech and in our thinking, uh, in in fact, the person of the Son was joined, inseparably joined to this human nature. And we cannot say that it was fallen or corrupted, therefore. Okay. I know this is hard. It's good for us, though, to just think about these things. Uh, For these reasons, Wellam says, the four that are listed above, it is better to affirm that Christ's human nature was unfallen and sinless. Our inborn inclination towards rebellion against God was not a part of Jesus' human makeup. Our inborn inclination toward rebellion against God was not a part of Jesus' human makeup. But a question arises. If Jesus could not sin, that is, if he was impeccable, which means flawless, flawless, unblemished, and theologically unable to sin, then were his temptations genuine? If Christ was unable to sin, were his temptations genuine? I think that question was raised by someone earlier in our study. It's a good question. Wellam answers it well. First, Jesus was genuinely tempted, yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15. As the obedient son, he faced trials, temptations, and sufferings for us from the beginning of his ministry to his death on the cross. Yet this does not mean that his temptations were identical to ours in every respect. Not identical to ours. Analogous, yes, but not totally identical. Although Jesus was fully human, he is also the divine son, and his temptations reflect this fact Wellam has a whole section here where he points, points out that Jesus was tempted by the evil one. Notice the temptation is external to him. Where is this temptation coming from? It's not from within his own uh, corrupted heart. right? But the evil one comes to him as he's in the wilderness, for example, to tempt him to do things like this, to turn rocks into bread. Have you ever been tempted, brothers and sisters, by the evil one? To turn rocks into bread. No. This was a temptation that was unique to Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, The evil one was tempting uh, Jesus, the Son, uh, to use his powers uh, to bring pleasure to himself as opposed to 
use his powers for the fulfillment of his mission and for the furtherance of the kingdom of God. It was a temptation unique to Christ, um, and it was unique to him because he was the eternal son. Also, unlike us, Jesus was not tempted by anything within or internal to himself. He was not enticed by anything within or internal to himself. Rather, Jesus was tempted by normal, sinless, human weakness and external forces. He was tempted by normal, sinless, human weakness and external forces. So there was no corruption in him, but yet there were plenty of things to tempt him as he lived in this world. Did Jesus in his humanity experience pain? Yes, he did. Was he sometimes tired in his humanity? Yes. Was he sometimes fearful? Uh, Yes, in a way, in a sinless way, he was. Was he sometimes anxious? What was he doing in the Garden of Gethsemane if he was not somewhat anxious there, sweating drops of blood? (laughs) So, So much did he dread the sorrow that was before him and the suffering that was before him in his humanity. I know the scriptures say, do not be anxious. And there is a sense in which anxiety can be sin if it persists. But Christ in his anxiety did what? He prayed and he submitted himself to the will of the Father. So he did the right thing with that natural angst that he felt in his soul. There were plenty of things to tempt him from without. The evil one himself, uh, the, 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 the world... Yes, uh, the pleasures of this world, uh, the promise of ease of life, I suppose we we may say. All of these temptations bombarded him, uh, and yet there was nothing for those temptations to take hold of. Because he was impeccable, uh, because he was undefiled. More than this, he was the eternal Son of God. Uh, this was the person who was acting through the nation, the, the, the nature that he assumed. So in fact... Uh, Jesus in in his humanity was tempted but unable to sin. Second, Jesus is impeccable because he is the divine son who assumed a human nature. And as such, his human nature never existed apart from this union. Jesus then is not merely another Adam constituted by a human person and nature. He is the last Adam, the head of a new creation, the eternal son incarnate. As McLeod rightly notes, if he sinned, God sinned. The Divine Son is the only self-conscious, self-asserting subject of Christ. Isn't that fascinating? Um, The risk risk was not only this. If, If Jesus sinned, it was not only a man who sinned, but God who would sin, because it was the person of the Son acting through the human nature. There was nothing for those temptations to land upon, you understand. God cannot sin. God cannot be tempted in the way that we are tempted. And there was nothing in the humanity of Christ, no corruption there for these sins to latch a hold of, or for these temptations to latch a hold of. And so it was not possible for Christ to sin. Third, although Jesus is impeccable owing to his divine person, we must still explain how the temptations are real. And part of the explanation is defining the nature of human freedom properly. I love where Wellham goes with this. I think he is so right. We must define the nature of human freedom properly. This is a big problem within um, Christ's church today. Um, do we believe in free will? 
brothers and sisters, be careful here. You might be surprised. Well, we're Calvinists, so no. Well, you've, brought it, you've bought into the propaganda then. It, <laughs> no, if that's what you... We do believe in free will. You know that? We do. We believe that we have freedom of choice. But we do not believe in the Arminian uh, version of free will, the libertarian, not political here, but theological, the libertarian version of free will. Uh, Free will must be carefully defined, lest we fall into error concerning our own condition and even concerning the actions of Christ. Uh, To put the matter very simply, so many Christians today claim that free will is this. It is the power and ability to do anything. You know, the power and ability to do anything is their understanding of what it means to have free will. Whereas we would want to say, no, that free will is the, uh, the power and the ability to act upon choice and to act upon the condition of our human nature, or the, the condition of our hearts. You, you understand the difference here. It is not that our choices are not ours. It's not that our choices aren't real. We have the ability to freely choose in this sense, but what do we do? We choose according to the condition of our nature or heart. And so our choices by nature are always contrary to God unless God shows mercy to us and renews us inwardly. Uh, So there are different ways of talking about free will and I think the Arminian libertarian view that is so common is thoroughly unbiblical. It is so thoroughly unbiblical. Uh, Whereas the Reformed and Calvinistic uh, presentation of free will is so, so much more consistent with, uh, with the Scriptures. Uh, Subpoint A here, many who reject Christ's impeccability often assume that for Christ to be truly tempted, He must always have the ability to do otherwise. See it there? Namely sin. But this assumes a libertarian view of freedom, which is problematic for numerous reasons. Instead, if one adopts a compatibilistic view of freedom, one can make sense of how Jesus, how Jesus impeccably resists temptation freely since He always chooses according to His unfallen, sinless wants and desires. See, further, we must remember that even though Christ was unfallen and impeccable, the Son as our covenant representative had to render human obedience for us, The Son's action in and through His human nature did not change the integrity of that nature. He lived, acted, acted, and faced every temptation as a true man to redeem us. It was the Son who rendered obedience, the person of the Son, but He did so as a man. Uh, And so, yes, He was sometimes tempted because He was fearful in a natural and human way of physical suffering. You understand? Physical suffering is not something that the divine can fear, for God is a most pure spirit. But Christ, the incarnate Son, did experience the real fear, if you will, or angst associated with physical suffering. He was not looking forward to being whipped on his back, or having a crown of thorns pressed into his scalp, or being nailed to the cross. The eternal Son 
by assuming a human nature, really did experience, according to that human nature, the angst associated with human and physical suffering. Are you with me? And so this obedience that the Son offered up was human obedience. The Son is the acting subject through the human nature. It was human obedience that was offered up. Uh, He had a mind, will, and affections too, and so he experienced human emotions. We've talked about angst. Does God, now I'm here talking about the divine, the triune God, does God feel angst? Answer, never. Never does God feel angst. God does not have a soul. He does not have a mind, will, and affection like ours. He's wholly other. But by assuming a human nature, the person of the Son as the acting subject was able to experience human angst and to submit himself fully to the will of the Father in the midst of it. Perfectly so, without sinning. He was tempted as we are, yet without sin. It's marvelous to consider. But there's so much trouble that arises from this libertarian view of human freedom. Uh, So many, even of our brothers and sisters in Christ, will say, well, you're not truly free unless you have the ability uh, to choose all possible choices, you know, one of them. So Christ had to really be able to sin in order to be fully tempted as we are. We say, no, that's, that's the result of your corrupted view of this. Um, in fact, we are free to make choices, but the choice will always be made according to our fallen nature. That is why, as children of wrath and in our national, natural condition, we always fall short of the glory of God. Even the good deeds that we do, even the good deeds that we do in our unfallen state fall short of the glory of God because they are not done to the glory of God. They're done for some other purpose, you see. So without faith, it is impossible to please God, the Scriptures say. You understand this? Um, And, in fact, we are not able to choose God. We are not able to give glory to Him. Do you hear the language of ability? In our unfallen state. So how then are we able to choose God? How then are we able to live for His glory? It is by the work that God does in us to renew our hearts by His mercy and grace. If you want to, um, I think, make the point succinctly to someone who holds to this libertarian view of freedom. I think maybe the quickest way to do it, I don't know that it will be effective, Uh, people tend to get entrenched in their views, uh, would be to ask this question, in heaven, in the new heavens and earth, will you be able to sin? Ask them that. In heaven, in the new heavens and earth, Will you be able to sin? And I hope that they say, No, it will not be possible for me to sin in the new heavens and new earth. I trust that they know their Bibles well enough to know that. They they likely do. And then what would be the next thing you say to them? Well then, are we robots, therefore, in the new heavens and new earth? Have we lost Freedom of will. Will we lose free will uh, as we stand before God in the new heavens and new earth? According to your definition of human freedom, we become robots then. The praise that we offer up to God, it's not really our praise. After all, we can't do otherwise. 
The obedience we offer up to God in the new heavens and new earth isn't real obedience. After all, we can't do anything but obey the Lord. You see, you understand where I'm going with this. Uh, it might help them to see that there's an inconsistency in their view. We will not be able to sin in the new heavens and new earth. Why? Why? Somebody said it. The nature. Our nature will be so renewed so that corruptions no longer remain. Will we worship God from the heart in the new heavens and new earth? Yes, we will. Will we offer up praise to Him freely? Yes, we will. Will we offer up obedience to Him freely? Not as robots, but as human beings, body and soul, mind, heart, and strength. Will we worship and serve the Lord? Will we love Him with all of our being? Yes, not because we are robots, but because we are free humans who have been redeemed and we have been renewed. Does that make sense to you? I think that might be the quickest way to get at this. And the same is true now in our present condition. Do we obey God now as Christians? Do we give glory to Him? Do we love Him? Do we praise Him? Yes. Do we do so perfectly? No. Corruptions remain. We're still tempted by the world, the, the, the evil one himself. And even within us, there are corruptions that remain. We are in the process of being sanctified. We're to put to death the old self and we're to put on the new, you see. And it's because of this uh, reality about our condition that we offer up a mixture of, uh, of obedience to the Lord and disobedience. Uh, there is progressive sanctification taking place now. Yes, we've been freed from the bondage of sin. Yes, we have been renewed, but there is also a progressive sanctification that is taking place. At this point, it is also crucial to stress the work of the Spirit on the human nature of Christ. Wellam says, Jesus is impeccable because He is the eternal Son who subsists and acts in both natures, but it is also because of His reliance on the Spirit at work in Him as a man that Jesus did not sin. There's all these things we have to take into consideration. Uh, why was Jesus not able to sin? Why was Jesus not able to sin? He was tempted as we are, yet without sin, and He was not able to sin. Why? Uh, to bring it all together, I think, and to, then to close. Uh, first, it was the eternal Son who was the acting subject in the Incarnation. No mere human person, but the eternal Son. Two, His human nature, the one that He assumed was unfallen, so He did not have these corruptions within Him that you and I have. And then three, He was anointed by the Holy Spirit beyond measure. And so in His humanity, He was upheld by the power of God. In His humanity, He was upheld by the power and working of the Holy Spirit within Him as the Messiah, uh, the Anointed One of God. I hope this is helpful to you. Uh, we have one more Sunday to um, <clears throat> continue to bring clarity, hopefully. I do appreciate the conversations midweek. If you have any questions, let me know. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Our Father in Heaven, uh, we thank You for Your mercy to us. I pray that You would help us to settle and to contemplate these marvelous truths. I pray that You would help us to fix our minds on You and on this Christ that You have provided. May we see this salvation as being truly glorious. It is mysterious to us. It is difficult to comprehend in some ways. But I pray that we would grow and grow in our understanding of this great mystery according to the truth You have revealed to us in Your Word. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.